The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this that you're listening to is the overture to a Broadway musical of 1924. Yes, this is a language podcast, but, well, you know the drill. This is a musical from 96 years ago today. It was called Sitting Pretty, and the music is by Jerome Kern. Just listen to the beauty here. Now, I'm playing that because it's just so damned pretty, and it has a commemorative feel, and I'm linking it to the celebration, at least I'm celebrating, that, you know, this is my 50th show. This is my 50th episode. And, you know, as I always say, I like to keep it happy in the valley, and that means, frankly, that I do not favor doing hot-button issues. I figure there are plenty of other places covering those, but I figured that for my 50th, I'm going to give in and give you a topic that a lot of you asked for that I have always quietly resisted. And that is, yep, wait for it, Donald Trump and the way he talks and how we should feel about it. And you want the truth? It's not a topic that I care as much about as I feel like people want me to. And this format is a handy way to actually show you why. Trump talk is less exotic than it seems. It's a symptom of larger developments in how America relates to language. So I'm going to take the circle in approach on Trump. We're going to go way back, as we so often do, and then get right up into these luscious times that we live in. So let's start with William Jennings Bryan. It's 1896, and he's making his famous cross of gold speech. This recording is actually from later, but he became famous for making it in 1896. He's a politician, but also known as an orator. Notice that there's barely a such thing today. So here he is, the man himself speaking. Mr. Chairman and gentlemen of the convention, I would be presumptuous indeed to present myself against the distinguished gentleman to whom you have listened if this were a mere measuring of abilities. But this is not a contest between persons. The humblest citizen in all the land when clad in the arm of a righteous cause, is stronger than all the hosts of error. I come to speak to you in defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, the cause of humanity. Now just listen to that language. I would be presumptuous indeed to present myself against the distinguished gentleman to whom you have listened if this were a mere measuring of abilities. That language would today be utterly bizarre. I mean, it was really, it was a kind of an art. There was a such thing as an orator back then. People would pay to listen to somebody make speeches like that, even who weren't politicians. And this is the interesting thing about Brian and that way of speaking that he was famous for, the boy orator from the Platte, as they called him. You know, he wasn't really the sharpest knife in the drawer, according to a lot of people who knew him. You know, he could 
get through life. But he was no genius. All of that wordage was not because he was extremely intelligent or, you know, extremely articulate when he wasn't making those prepared speeches. It was often said that he was not the brightest bulb on the tree. And yet he had a career speaking that way. Not to mention, in 1896, the man was only about 36. So this wasn't an oldish way of talking. That isn't about having silver hair and a big Gilded Age pot belly. Today, you know, we think of 36 as, or even 52, as a mere child. And yet, he was talking that way. It was an expectation in the late 19th century. And before and after, our oral culture was different. One made a speech. When you got up in front of people to talk, you didn't just say some shit. You made a speech. It was a tacit expectation, but like today, you you go to a party. You're expected to bring either wine or some dessert. Now, if you ask, what should I bring? The person that's going to say, oh, no, don't bring anything, but you better bring something. You're supposed to at least bring some wine. For some reason today, that's allowed to be a rosé, but you have to bring something. Or during a lull in a conversation, it is tacitly expected that you sigh. You have to sigh. You can't just sit there. There's something wrong with you. You have to go, "Ah, think about how little sense that actually makes. Or you've got to smack your legs. You've got to go, bam, that kind of on the thighs. You have to do it. Nobody ever wrote that down, but it's just there. In William Jennings Bryan's era, if you got up and spoke, you had to make an oration. Now, part of this was because there was no amplification, and so one needed to be clear. But you could be clear without so much grandiloquence. It was just a different time. To be a person of any influence, just like you couldn't walk around naked, you were expected to learn how to speak. The McGuffey readers, for example, are very interesting reading in so many ways. I have one from 1879. And at one point, they're saying something which you would never see in a book today. It's almost like they're telling you how to talk. And, you know, pretty much everybody talks. But what they mean is that if you're going to be somebody who does anything except basically pitch hay, then you have to learn how to speak. So there's a passage. I guess the passage has to have a voice. It would be Richard Hayden, okay, an old character actor. And so it says, Inflections are slides of the voice upward or downward. Of these, there are two, the rising inflection and the falling inflection. Both inflections are exhibited in the following question. Did you walk or ride down? Did you walk or ride down? What's that doing in there? It's because you had to learn how to speak. So, Toastmasters today that purports to teach people how to speak, I imagine they do, that would have seemed redundant in 1879. School taught you those sorts of things. Now, this is not only a gaslight era and before kind of tradition, because this sort of thing continued well into the 20th century. For example, Pearl Harbor. I think most of us know what happened, and you can imagine that people had some things to say in public afterwards. Now, this is supposedly the cue for me to play something that Franklin D. Roosevelt said, but, you know, I've played enough of him. You all know how he sounded. And frankly, the point is better made by listening to now forgotten people in Congress fulminating about what happened. Today, think of, you know, whoever your congressmen are. They most likely are not what you would call grandiloquent, and they wouldn't sound anything like, for example, Joseph Martin. This is Congressman Joseph Martin. He's from Massachusetts. He was born in 1884. And this is what he said 
after Pearl Harbor. I know the horrors which come with war, the loss of lives, the sacrifices which must be made by all, the sadness and desolation it always brings. America is challenged. That challenge comes in a ruthless way which leaves but one answer for a liberty-loving, self-respecting people. We are compelled by this treacherous attack to go to war. Listen to that man. He's trilling his R's. Harder. It's amazing. I'm not playing something from a play. This is an actual feed from Congress that day. This is actually a very precious recording. And really, if you think about it, Joseph Martin, who the hell was he? I mean, he was just some guy, one of the many congressmen. And yet he makes that speech sounding as if he was William Jennings Bryan. Oh, I can imagine now I'm sitting here saying, who the hell was he? I'll bet his granddaughter or something might be listening to this. I'm going to take a guess that his granddaughter would be named Abigail and I'm going to get some sort of email and she's going to say, Mr. McWhorter, I'll have you know that my grandpa Joe, okay, Abigail, well, I can't call you Abigail, Mrs. Martin, I mean no disrespect, but I'm sure you do understand that your grandfather was less famous than FDR. Or Hamilton Fish, Another one of these people who, you know, most of us have never heard of today. He made a speech. He's born 1888. He lived to be like 400 years old, but he was born in 1888. Listen to him. I have consistently opposed our entrance into war in Europe and Asia for the past three years. But the unwarranted, vicious, brazen, and dastardly attack by the Japanese Navy and Air Force while peace negotiations were pending at Washington and in defiance of the president's 11th hour personal appeal to the emperor, makes war inevitable and necessary. The time for debate and controversy within America has passed. The time for action has come. At Washington, this is the way you spoke in Congress, 1941. That wasn't that long ago. There was electricity and penicillin was, you know, about to come, I think. So this is how people spoke. And it wasn't always in rather performative contexts like that. Let's have Emma Goldman, for example. You ever wonder how she talked? You know, she lived long enough to be recorded. She gets deported. She comes back and she's barely off of the gangplank and all these reporters swarm around her and they ask her about current events. And she's standing there you know, her hands free. She's not making a speech. She may not have even known people were going to ask her her opinion about anything. And here's the way she spoke with the cameras on. What is your opinion of President Roosevelt? I'm glad that President Roosevelt has been one of the very few men in the White House who has come to realize the right of the working people to organize and to better their conditions by means of their organized power. Listen to that. It's as if she had written it out beforehand, but she was just talking. She was part of that culture. How about FDR's mom? Imagine how FDR's mother would have talked. Haven't you ever wanted to know? Well, you're about to find out because there actually is a newsreel in 1934, same year as that Emma Goldman clip, of Sarah Roosevelt, who was born in 1854, talking. Here's what she says to the camera. I believe that this is the happiest birthday of my 80 years. It is nice to be here with my son and all my family. It seems especially 
delightful to celebrate it here in my own dear home, which has always been the sweetest and most beautiful place in the whole world to me. Of course, that is what a home should mean to everyone. I believe the thing that I am proudest of in what my son is trying to do is the movement to enable so many people to brighten and beautify their homes. Where and how we live has so much to do with our happiness, and this is bound to bring about a more prosperous and a happier country. So there's your orator culture. Imagine what somebody would say now. They'd say, okay, yeah, well, that's how they'd start. Well, Sarah Roosevelt didn't say anything like that. She had a sense. And you can see it even in comedy. So, for example, something I highly recommend is Abbott and Costello's TV show. Not the movies, but their TV show. There are two seasons of it. It was truly surreal. You wouldn't think that anything with two roused about comedians in 1953 would be surreal. But just like Green Acres actually was a very witty show if you actually watch your way through it, which only some people have, of course. Abbott and Costello was actually more surreal. And I have busted a gut watching, especially the first season. It really, it's really a surprise. And one episode has poor Lou Costello running for some kind of office and the expectation is that he's going to make a speech and listen to the pitch of the speech listen to the sort of voice that he goes into when he's quote-unquote making a speech hello voters i want you to support me as your city councilman and i promise you ladies and gentlemen that i will Or notice here how he pretends to be picky about either or either. The idea being that you're going to make a speech using elevated grammar, following all of those mythical rules that were taught. So here he says, When I am not either, I could have said either. (laughs) That I am not either or either a Republican or a Democrat. I am in the middle. And then notice that because he doesn't really have anything to say, he tries to crib something else. And what does he try to crib? I feel just like Abraham Lincoln. Oh, that's what I call a real The Gettysburg Address. That's the way he's thinking. Now, this is just for comedy. But, of course, comedy is based on real life. So that was the culture. It was a culture not only of oration, but of the corresponding clothing. Imagine. You know, it's 1950 and it's a really hot day, but you've still got to wear that hat and the coat. The women have to have a slip on under their dress. Imagine what that was like. The clothes were more formal. Manners were more formal. How do you do? Attitudes towards sex, you know, pretending that it's not right to have premarital sex. The way people danced that you touched when you danced and you had to learn steps. You you had to go to dancing school. That's anthropologically bizarre to us today. It was a more formal time, and therefore people were more formal about language. Yes, it is time for a Looney Tune. I know that you're, you're waiting. And you talk about the formal clothes. Talk about, say, a fedora. You know, men are walking around in fedoras, or, you know, sometimes it might even be a rabbit that's wearing a fedora. No, not 
Bugs Bunny. Looney Tunes, frankly, sucked until about 1937. And I'm allowed to say that because I actually I've seen 873 of the 1001 at last count. I've been keeping a log since I was 10. And I can tell you, frankly, they're unwatchable until about 1937. So why not give you one from 1935? One of the shittiest cartoons ever made. It's called My Green Fedora. And at one point, the rabbit puts on a fedora and he starts singing about it. So there are two things that we can learn from that clip. First of all, in 1935, everybody knew what a fedora was. You know, they wouldn't have written the song and the rabbit wouldn't have been wearing one. And also the little rabbit is singing it to a little baby rabbit who is, are they called leverets? There's that hairs. Anyway, little baby rabbit. And the baby rabbit is in a crib. And that is that laugh that you hear. And the laugh is, (laughs) you know, that laugh. You, Lexicon Valley listeners, know what that laugh is now. That is Joe Penner. I wonder how many more excuses I'm going to come up with to bring up that obscure comedian. But that, (laughs) everybody would have recognized that as the Joe Penner laugh. In any case, that was the culture. And no, I'm not being nostalgic for it. Not at all. I'm not saying that it was better. You could not pay me to live in 1936 for some reasons rather obvious and some not. I wrote a book about changing styles of speech and writing a very long time ago. And some people thought that I wrote it saying that I thought 1895, 1896 was better. No, by no means. No, I am very happy to have been born in the mid-1960s, 1965 to be exact. And that is when everything started to change. Not only the fedoras, not only the pretenses about sex, but also our relationship to oratory. Hey mama, hey mama, look around. Everybody's grooving to a brand new sound. Hey mama, hey What's that under there? That's from Hairspray. That is Welcome to the 60s. One of the catchier songs in that show. It was a great number, except really they should have Tracy come out before Edna. If I directed a Hairspray, that's what I would do. My two cents. Anyway, this is Welcome to the 60s. And what is it that changed? Well... With the rise of the counterculture, with the demise of a certain needless formality of the old days, we started taking it easy about speech as well. So, for example, famous speech, 1964 at Berkeley, where I used to teach. Mario Savio is leading the free speech movement, and he makes one of the most effective and beautiful speeches ever known. And here is the good part here. I ask you to consider if this is a firm and if the Board of Regents are the Board of Directors and if President Kerr, in fact, is the manager 
And I tell you something, the faculty are a bunch of employees and we're the raw materials. But we're a bunch of raw materials that don't mean to be, have any process upon us, don't mean to be made into any product, don't mean, don't mean to end up being bought by some clients of the university, be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Now, isn't that great? But notice the difference between, say, Grandpa Joe and that. You know, it's been less than 25 years, but there's already a change happening. Something's blowing in the wind. He's sounding more like a normal person than anybody making that kind of speech probably would have in, say, 1905. You know, if F. Scott Fitzgerald had been in college and had sobered up enough to make some sort of speech to rally the students, it would not have sounded like that. And so then you pass into the 70s and the 80s. And I can say that, you know, when I was growing up and learning how to talk or (laughs) whatever, I never knew of anybody who made a speech. I can't recall ever having seen anybody do it outside of, of course, an old movie or an old radio show. Nor do I think anybody's ever asked me to make a speech. I get asked to do talks where I'm allowed to say things like or whatever, etc. But I haven't made a speech. And the one time I ever did give a talk and use a script was because I was hungover and that didn't count. And so, for example, George Bush, the father, 1992, is giving a State of the Union address. And this is written, but listen to the way even something that's pitched as a formal speech could be written in 1992. Here here he was near the end. I remembered this. It's kind of an American tradition to show a certain skepticism toward our democratic institutions. I myself have sometimes thought the aging process could be delayed if it had to make its way through Congress. But uh, you will... You... You will uh, deliberate and you will discuss, and that is fine. But my friends, the people cannot wait. They need help now. And there's a mood among us. People are worried. There's been talk of decline. Someone even said our workers are lazy and uninspired. And I thought, really? You go tell Neil Armstrong, standing on the moon, tell the men and women who put him there. See, George Washington would never have spoken in that way in public. And you know, Yeah, we have to. His son. We all remember that there was a certain challenge that he faced. And what was interesting about it was that that sort of thing did not stop him from becoming president. It was just part of what was in the air. And so, for example, here are a couple of memorable things. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once. Shame on, shame on you. If 
fool me, we can't get fooled again. If you're a single mother with two children, which is the toughest job in America as far as I'm concerned, and you're working hard to put food on your family. <laughs> and there you went. But you know, you go through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and what you saw was something you could call defining deviance downward. And it just got to the point that we didn't expect people to be able to talk like William Jennings Bryan and frankly almost didn't want them to. We can now be sophisticated people without the old style oratory. You wouldn't have thought so in 1905 because everybody had to do it a certain way. You can make fun of Bushisms, for example, but if anybody gave a speech like William Jennings Bryan or Grandpa Joe today, we'd have them committed. It would just be bizarre. America doesn't need that anymore. There's some analogies. And so, for example, rap in all of its wonders is interesting in that it shows that sophisticated artistic human beings don't need their music to be based strongly on, say, melody and harmony. Instead, with rap, you have the rhythm, you have the overlaying, you have all the things that are good about rap. But I think in 1950, it would have surprised somebody to know that a music could be so popular that wasn't based on the sorts of things that you learn in a music class, melody and harmony. You wouldn't have known. Or you know, podcasting, to get a little meta about it, podcasting and its extreme popularity among people under 35 in particular means that you can be a very sophisticated person and not need writing. You know, once there's the technology, you can get your information through the ear, which is interesting because I used to think of myself as a writer and I fear I'm losing touch with that whole self-conception. And it's because the times are changing. And so, of course, Sarah Palin didn't surprise me. Listen to her when they ask her about Paul Revere. Here she goes. He who warned uh, the... British that they weren't going to be taking away our arms uh, by ringing those bells and, and um, making sure as he's riding his horse through town to send those warning shots and bells that uh, we were going to be secure and we were going to be free. So that's Sarah Palin when she's asked to say something about the issues of the day. Now let's play Emma Goldman again. You know, a bunch of people jump on Emma Goldman when she's minding her business, and Emma Goldman says this. I'm glad that President Roosevelt has been one of the very few men in the White House who has come to realize the right of the working people to organize and to better their conditions by means of their organized power. Sarah Palin said this. He who warned uh, the... British that they weren't going to be taking away our arms uh, by ringing those bells and, and um, making sure as he's riding his horse through town to send those warning shots and bells that uh, we were going to be secure and we were going to be free. But you know, Palin, she isn't so hideously inarticulate. It's just that in her time, she doesn't feel a need to orate. Oddly enough, she's actually a very good writer. She read a lot as a child. If you read her writing, she's almost as good as David Sedaris. But then when she talks, all of a sudden there's this swivel tongue. And that's because she can. Hence, once, you know, Sarah Palin has kind of faded away, somebody else comes along and you get this. Having nuclear, my uncle was a great professor and scientist and engineer, Dr. John Trump at MIT. Good, good genes, very good genes, okay? Very smart. 
the Wharton School of Finance. Very good. Very smart. You know, if you're a conservative Republican, if I were a liberal, if like, okay, if I ran as a liberal Democrat, they would say I'm one of the smartest people anywhere in the world. It's true. But when you're a conservative Republican, they try, oh, do they do a number? That's why I always start off, went to Wharton, was a good student, went there, went there, did this, built the, you know, I have to give my like, credentials all the time because we're at a little disadvantage. But you look at the nuclear deal, the thing that really bothers me, it would have been so easy, and it's not as, as important as these lives are, nuclear is so powerful. My uncle explained that to me many, many years ago, the power, and that was 35 years ago. He would explain the power of what's going to happen, and he was right. Who would have thought? But when you look at what's going on with the four prisoners, now it used to be three, now it's four. But when it was three, and even now, I would have said, it's all in the messenger. Fellas, and it is fellas because, you know, they, don't, they haven't figured that the women are smarter right now than the men, so, you know, it's going to take them about another 150 years. But the Persians are great negotiators. The Iranians are great negotiators. So, and they, they just killed. They just killed us. You know what he means, but obviously Trump is not concerned at all with being what we would call articulate. You know, William Jennings Bryan, Grandpa Joe, stop calling him that, um, Joseph Martin, those people are gone, and now we have Donald Trump, who's just talking. Now, it's not complete word salad. I want you to hear some word salad. <laughs> Looney Tune again. This is the Penguin Parade, and out comes a Penguin MC. Listen to him talking. This is a lot of fun. Listen. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate your coming here this morning, grand opening, and believe me about fun. You don't know what the speeds are for tonight. It's one of the biggest things going to have to happen here, and we need some monitors. We're at the North Pole, set the beach right, right up the state. We're going to be a big cooling system to it. It's an opening of the big fire thread, and Leon Schlesinger brought us in the grease cooler, because he's one of the states. Now, Ray Casper made up there with the Eskimos. He's never as far as anything down there at Warner Brothers, because they figured five months here to have the opening the way they should have before speed feet. Now, tonight, the Open Ground Floor Show, with one of the greatest stuff you have left, the Penguin Parade sit for a minute, and the rhythm really has got you going to stand in front of me. The soldiers are going to mark five prices and step. And when your boys can be the feet, believe me, it's going to be one of the greatest trips going here. And there you are. <laughs> Do you notice that the penguin is not actually saying anything? He's dropping in some words, but it's actually this complete linguistic jello, probably peach jello, that sounds like English in terms of the sounds and the pacing, but it's just word salad. There was a comedian who specialized in doing this in the late 30s and early 40s. His name was Cliff Nazaro. Anyway, that's word salad. Trump, in contrast, is really just talking like any number of people, including many of us, when you're on a bar stool or wherever you are. So, for example, here's some more of how Trump talks. And I have the smartest businessmen in the world. Many of them are endorsing me. Carl Icahn's endorsing me. A lot of the great ones. Because they know I'm, like, smart. This is what I do. So what happens... But this is too easy. I don't need any, but this is too easy. This takes minutes. So what happens is... He'll say, probably, we can't do that. I'll say, don't worry about it. Call me whenever you're ready. Within 24 hours, I'll get a call. And he'll make one more plea. Mr. President, that's not right. I'll say, 35%. And if you wait another day, it's going to 40, okay? Sure. Going to 40. And as good and as tough and as smart as they are, here's what he's going to say has to. This isn't like 99%. This is 100%. He's going to say, Mr. President, we're going to build our new plant in the United States. Right here. 
well, this is the place I'd like to see it. But we're going to build on your, and that's 100%. Now, he may wait a day, he may wait two days, but that's what's going to happen. Now, it's one thing for many of us to sit cringing at how hideously inarticulate he is. And some people even listen to him and have speculated that he's got some sort of mental disorder. But frankly, listen to Rodney Dangerfield. And partly just because I find him extremely amusing and have wanted to use him on the show for a while. But listen to Rodney Dangerfield. Listen to his phraseology. Is it that different? The short sentences, the avoidance of subordination, as in he told me that he was going to do this. He did that when he was a boy. Simple sentence structure, very punchy, gets it across the way your uncle Hamilton does That's how Rodney Dangerfield spoke, and it was considered very effective, and it made him a lot of money. Trump and Rodney Dangerfield aren't that far apart. I was talking to my doctor. You know my doctor, Dr. Vinnie Boombach. You know my doctor? Well, he told me last week in his office he got six cases of VD. I mean, he's all right now, you know. (laughs) Oh, he's a strange doctor. Strange doctor. I asked him if my heart was strong enough to sex. He told me not if I join in, you know? Yes, right, Doc. But everyone wants love. Love is the answer, John. Everyone's looking for love. Deep love. A lifetime of deep love, you know. I'm looking for a shallow half hour, you know. (laughs) So, Trump talk. No, we have never before had a president who spoke quite like this that we're aware of, in public in particular. Who knows how Zachary Taylor talked in private and, you know, who cares? But he certainly did not present himself that way in public, nor did Andrew Johnson or Warren Harding or other presidents who were kind of slobs. You had to put on the deodorant. Here's Trump, though. He doesn't have to put on that deodorant. And it's not because he has some sort of mental disorder. It's because he lives in a time when we have stopped expecting people to use linguistic deodorant. You can, but to tell you the truth, Mitt Romney did, and I think that's part of why he didn't become president. He seemed too presidential. He seemed like he could have had dinner with William Jennings Bryan. Whereas Trump, well, we love our authenticity and thank God we do, but part of it is that you do get a president who sounds like that. And, you know, we've got a certain amount of business here at the end. A few things. One, so many of you ask me why I say a such thing instead of such a thing. And you know what the answer is? I I don't know. Two, I have a new book coming out. In the beginning, I got some hate mail from people who thought that I was doing the show just to sell my book. So I stopped talking about them. But I have a new book coming out. It's an academic book. It's called The Creole Debate. It is not one to take to the beach. I'm saying this for those of you who are academic linguists or educators or related people who might be listening. Those of you who are interested in what that book is about but don't wish to be bored, you should listen to the episode of Lexicon Valley called From Pigeons to Creoles, which I I think we released on September 19th last year, but basically don't fall for the hype that Creoles don't come from pigeons and aren't interesting languages. They are very interesting languages. I'm on a crusade. For those of you who like dull books, please buy the Creole debate. For those of you who like to enjoy life or at least pretend, listen to the episode called From Pigeons to Creoles, where I get it across in much more vibrant fashion than one is allowed to as an academic. And finally, This one is because of Susan Weisberg. Thank you for pushing me over the edge. 
every three days, for some reason, only lately, every three days, one of you writes me and asks why either people say butter instead of butter or why people say cotton instead of cotton. And a lot of you seem to be under the impression that that's new. And I hate to be monotonous about this, but no, it's quite ancient. But a lot of you are very perplexed by it, even if you do say butter and cotton. I mean, I doubt if most of you say, I'd like a pat of butter, please. And you certainly don't talk about somebody wearing a cotton shirt. Some of you do. I dated somebody. But no, most of you, you don't. Okay, what is it? Well, there is an explanation. And that is that you take a consonant and you put it between two vowels and often that consonant softens to use the layman's kind of term that linguists hate to hear people like me using. For those of you who don't want me to say that, it goes voiced. But notice how that doesn't mean anything to most people. So, for example, the word taboo that we have, that comes from a Polynesian word that's originally tapu. Tapu, but we say taboo. The p became a b. That kind of happens. Well, notice that t and d are in the same relationship as p and b. So what starts out as butter, quite understandably, will become butter because the consonant softens. Technically, it's something called a flap rather than a d, but we don't need to bother with that here. And so that's why you get something like butter instead of butter. Now, that doesn't always happen. If you cross the pond, then that kind of flapping is often not necessary. And somebody will say butter. That's fine for them. But we say butter. Now, what's up with cotton? Why don't we say cotton? Because cotton is what's written. Cotton is older. See, I can barely say it. It's all about stops. And I don't mean, I mean, stop sounds. And so if you put your articulators together in some way and stop the airflow and then let the air out, that's called a stop sound. You can do it with your lips. You can do it behind your teeth. You can do it with your soft palate. Your velum. Like that. Okay. Right. But if you think about it, your lips and your teeth. And your soft palate are not the only parts of your mouth that you can put together. You can go further back. You can do it with your lips. Put. You can do it behind your teeth. T. You can do it with your soft palate. K. You can do it back in your throat and go. Uh. So p t k uh. They're all variations on the same thing. There's nothing disgusting about the back of your throat, or at least there doesn't have to be. I mean, remember we learned in the last episode that they're languages that don't have any p. Imagine if you don't have a P sound, how disgusting P kind of is because you spit. So you're thinking that it's normal to just have T, K, uh, and then you learn that there's a P. Ew, that's vile. Well, in many languages, there's uh, and we think of uh from English as just some shit. But uh in many languages is very much a real sound. And more to the point, stops like chinchillas have a way of moving all around one another in the cage. And so, for example... Samoan, the word is tapu. In Hawaiian, that same word has become kapu. The t became a k because the stops are always moving around. Well, cotton, 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 cotton. Variations on the same thing. And that's why you say button. You button the cotton. You don't button the cotton. In any case, I've mentioned taboo. And I think some of you are wondering why I'm not going to play something from the Broadway musical Taboo. And frankly, the reason is I didn't like it. I didn't think the music was very good, but I really did love 
culture clubs music back in the 80s. And so instead of playing, you know, everything taboo from that musical, let's play what my favorite culture club song was, which was not Karma Chameleon. That one a little monotonous to me, but Church of the Poison Mind with Helen Terry doing that vocal over it. I love this one. It takes me back to college. Sexual frustration and being under the mistaken impression that I was learning French, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Good times. Anyway, thanks to Mike Slate Panoply and all of you for letting me get to 50 and to June Thomas for putting up with all sorts of things I don't need to mention. A lot of you tell me you're listening through the backlog. That now means you're putting up with a whole day's worth of me droning on. I hear their support groups if you need it. In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. This show is edited by Mike Volo. And I am, as always, John McWhorter. <laughs>